This program, The Well-Tempered City and the Future of Urban Life, features a discussion with visionary real estate developer Jonathan F.P. Rose, composer Philip Glass, and architecture critic Paul Goldberger. It was recorded on September 13, 2016, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, and most importantly, to welcome two extraordinary people, Philip Glass and Jonathan Rose, uh, both of whom I think are known, known to most of you. Um, they're both people who define their fields, their pursuits, very, very broadly, not narrowly. Um, Jonathan is a real estate developer who goes far beyond the scope of real estate development to uh, an extraordinary number of both social and cultural enterprises, environmentalism, sustainability, uh, and most importantly through this book that we'll be talking about tonight has proven himself to be at this point I think one of the key contemporary philosophers and thinkers about the nature and future of the city. Uh, not a phrase I would associate with most real estate developers, I suppose. Um, Philip Glass is also, I think, known to uh, all of you and almost everyone in New York and every lover of music everywhere. Uh, he is one of the great composers of our time, uh, and he has done extraordinary work with Robert Wilson, among others, creating the landmark opera Einstein on the Beach. Um, he has done scores for numerous films um, and several new works, including an opera on the death of Walt Disney entitled The Perfect America, uh, and a memoir, Words Without Music, published recently. Uh, and most recently, the L.A. Philharmonic, conducted by Gustav, Gustavo Dudamel, performed the world premiere of a double piano concerto, he wrote, I, I presume in Walt Disney Concert Hall by Frank Gehry, in fact, which ties a whole bunch of other things together. So welcome, welcome to both of you. Um, we're... We want to use Jonathan's extraordinary book, and I think it is an extraordinary book. It's a book that, to me, really feels like a contemporary version of Lewis Mumford. Um, or the, let, let me say the good side of Lewis Mumford, as opposed to the uh, not entirely good side, in that you really take the idea of the city and weave it together with um, issues of philosophy, history, and really questions about, uh, you know, what does civilization mean at this point, and, and, and what is it all about, uh, going far beyond physical form. But why don't we start by talking about the title, The Well-Tempered City, which is a, um, an obvious uh, allusion to Bach. Uh, and in the book, you talk a certain amount about this metaphor. Um, I would love you both, actually, to, to talk for a moment about 
the idea of well-tempered, uh, what Bach meant, what Jonathan Rose means, <laughs> and what the idea of the well-tempered city actually is. So why don't you talk about what Bach, Bach meant, and then I'll okay. talk about how, why, how I distorted the idea. I get right. to have all the yeah. fun, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that's uh, impressive, as you said, the, the book, it's, uh, it covers the city through a lot of different yes. ways. And uh, if anything, I would say that uh, the points of view that Jonathan takes, because he's studying this city, has been building in the city, has, been, has, has a lot of experience. This is a real hands-on city guy, I would say. And if I would say, and, and it covers all the cities that you, so, I mean, have you, how many cities are listed in, in your book? I don't know. You don't know? I'll count that up. So well, there's an awful lot that are referred to in Cities that we don't, many of us don't know, and some of us we know very well. Um, uh, now, I'll just say a little bit about that, then we'll talk about the Bach business. But the, the thing that was, uh, that's really compelling about the piece is that, um, the the what he really has to say really comes at the end of the book because the idea is how does something that diverse and so heterogeneous as a city so open to so many different ways of viewing it how do you how do you in what way do you sum it up in what way is, is there and there actually there is a point of view and the point of view is uh, I would say say the well-tempered city, but I would say that the harmonious city. Now, the well-tempered gets me into this talk, so I have to explain that. The, uh, uh, as some of you, well, without going into a lot of detail, that uh, one of the issues in, uh, in music uh, history was that uh, when we get into the, eight, uh, the end of the set, towards the end of the 17th century, and composers are starting to write music in different keys, now you have to remember, before that, a lot of the vocal music of the Renaissance, it, there's no modulation. You, you stay in one key the whole time. Uh, in fact, to this day, a lot of uh, music that's not Western-oriented does that. Uh, if a lot of the music from India, from uh, uh, Java, from Africa, it, it, there is no, we call it root movement, there's no harmonic movement, really. So it never, it, so this issue never comes up, but it comes up because uh, uh, people began to start to write music in different keys, and they discovered a very disconcerting thing, which is that when they did that, the pieces sound out of tune, and they sounded out of tune. Uh, I can, I can. The very this may be oversimplified way of putting it, but I think you'll understand it this way. If you take the overtone series, you know about that. That if you hit it. A note of, and all the notes that come out above it will be generated by that fundamental note. Uh, but what happens is that uh, the higher you get, the more out of tune it becomes. It's not really out of tune within itself, but if you were playing, uh, but if you were playing a, a, a violin part, which and you were pretty high up on the overtone series, and then you went into another key it wouldn't sound right. It would sound out of tune. And that was the problem. And, and in fact, we would not have had the whole great uh, development of romantic music and post-romantic music uh, from 
uh, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, Brahms, uh, uh, Wagner, into the modern period, none of that music would have been possible until they had solved this problem of, the, of, the, of being out of tune. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, I have a, a, a friend, not a very good friend, but, but, a, but a real friend, who's uh, a composer named Lamont Young. Do you know who he is? He has, a, he has spent a, a lifetime developing uh, what we call, was it natural tuning or? His actually, he's invented his own tuning. Okay. He calls it the well-tempered piano, but he actually yeah, invented it. Right, it's actually, but his, but now, okay. when you hear him play the piano, it's beautiful, but it sounds out of tune to me. Because he's gone back to the, to the he's, he's tried to replicate some of the, uh, uh, some of the overtones and the way they really sound. And, uh, and so he's made his piano do that. So when I hear, I, I, I like to hear him play. He's a beautiful performer. But I have to say, and I've, it's not here. It always sounds out of tune to me. Because it, it is out of tune. Because it's in tune. It, because it's in tune with itself. Yeah, with itself. Exactly. Okay. So. But, no, but the trouble is, uh, and, and if, if he were to do a quartet, and he did write string quartets when he was much younger. But he would have that problem that he wouldn't be able to play in different keys at the same time, because then you would become, it would be very evident that things were out of tune. So this, the, the problem of tuning is one of the big issues that happen in music. When I first, when I play with someone, the first thing you do is you tune up. I mean, and that's not just a ritual, it's a necessity. Uh, and I've, <laughs> I played, there's some quartets that just cannot they have machines and everything, and they just can't. They're, they're, they go into the concert, and they've never really t right. satisfied the tuning the way they want. I won't even tell you who it is. It doesn't matter. But uh, I've watched this for, and sometimes they'll spend half an hour tuning. And then they'll say, OK, everybody go back to your dressing room. Tune it the best way you can. Use the, uh, you, can you, you can use it electronically, and, and that's it. But uh, so tuning is a super important thing. and. Uh, uh, to be able to hear that, by the way, in itself is difficult. And not every I, I don't, I, I can things, I can hear when things are out of tune. But when they're out of tune, or someone who really hears, hears well, they can hear the beats that come up, and they can count can the beats. Can a city be out of tune? What? Can a city yeah. be out of tune How or can in tune? So the idea. I, I, I want to get back yeah. to the metaphor yeah. here, right. so I wanna, Jonathan's right. metaphor, and so see whether it's right. valid. Well, or well not. you know, this right. is yeah. the point. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, about, but right. the, the point is that, in a funny way, we're talking about a most harmonious, right. uh, the, the, the ideal of yes. is is a, of a harmonious society, uh, uh, where all kinds of issues of of uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, natural of, of uh, the means of eating, the means of way of dealing with water, uh, 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 schools, whatever you think of. When schools are, the cities are full of that. And those are the things we right. work on. Right. And, uh, and what Jonathan, is, and he comes to the end of the, you, I won't tell you, he, he, if he wants to tell you the end, he can tell you, but I'm not going to be the one to tell you. <laughs> but when he gets to the end, he, he finally delivers this, the, the theme of the book, you finally said, oh, that's what it's about. It's about the harmonious city. Uh, so, so but, but, but the curious thing is that, that the, the, the Bach that we're talking about, the well-tempered 
clavier is actually a distortion of nature. It's not a resolution. However, that's, I'm not sure that that's true either. So the, the, but the city is not yeah. nature anyway, right? We'll right. come back to that. We'll Let's come, come back, back to that. that so that's this is important. Wait, so here's the point. I, the, so the answer to your original question. Right. Oh, you so, so you asked me to explain all this. I'm right? glad you explained it. <laughs> I love that. I, love, music is what fills my soul. So I love listening to conversation about music and the music itself. So uh, the idea was that here temperament was a system that allowed these different keys that um, sounded out of a tune with each other to create harmony. Yes, and in right. fact, one of the key issues about cities is that um, we need to integrate a huge amount of things. And so uh, too often cities have been run by different departments, the water department, the environment department, the housing department, the school department don't talk to each other. And what we've learned actually is the best solutions come from integration. And, but I didn't, from, uh, my goal was not just to speak about integration at the practical level, because that's pretty easy. But I actually, to go back to your original question, I actually believe one needs a very high vision to aim towards. That if you don't aim towards a sense of perfection, a goal of perfection, if you aim towards mediocrity, that's what you're going to get. If you just get aim towards technical things working, that's what you're going to get. The way it works very well with the music is that, and you go through this very eloquently, you say when you listen to Bach, you hear all this music going on together, all the counterpoint and the melodies coming together, and it's fantastic. And it all fits. And it gives one actually a sense of the architecture of the universe. Of but, but you realize yeah. it's in fact, this thing that fits so beautifully yeah. is in fact, if you open, open up the inside, it's enormously complex and contrived. It's contrived. Right. It is not nearly as simple but as it maybe seems to be when you hear it. Th th right? Then you might, we could question whether right. your solutions right. are contrived. I don't think so. <laughs> well, although one thing that just occurred to me as you were talking is you could make an analogy between different keys and the idea of diversity in a city. Because of course, exactly. you know, the uh, the keys don't live together in harmony unless there's a vision that weaves them together and puts exactly. them together so it works. And similarly, the diverse population of a city does not necessarily right. live in harmony unless it shares a harmonious right. vision of some kind. Is so that a fair thing to say as it, an interpretation it, of... It is, and it actually calls to mind another analogy in the book, which is neuroscience and right. what right. Uh, 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 scientist named Dan Siegel says is that the healthy mind is the one that integrates its its different parts. Yes, yes. And that neurosis actually is a sign of disintegration or lack of integration. And so I was using music and mm -hmm. I used this Fro analogy Freud of the would brain. Not agree. Pardon me? Freud would, Freud would not agree. I know, but I don't agree with Freud. Anymore. Okay. So, <laughs> and Freud is actually a whole other subject, but, but the Freudians, I hope there's no Freudians, there, even it doesn't matter if there are, don't acknowledge modern neuroscience, but Anyway, we don't need right, to go down there. Right. But the point is, yes. That the, so key number one, there are five ideas in the book. And the first one is called coherence. Right. And the idea of coherence is that we actually need to integrate many disparate parts into a coherent whole. We need to do that with a plan. And as, as I was starting to say earlier, you need to actually do it with an extraordinary aspirational vision as to who we are and what we want to be. And that is actually something I feel that is missing from the contemporary political discourse, and it's, it's, it's missing from the contemporary way that we plan cities. We need really high aspirations that are not only physical, they're environmental, and they're about social justice, and they weave those all it's, together. It's not only missing from the contemporary political right. discourse, it seems to have gotten farther away in the last right. year. 
than it was before. Exactly. Can I, can I ask yeah. you a question, yeah. John? Yeah. In the book, you talk about a, an ancient city right. that's extremely successful. I don't even remember the name of it. But, uh, and it, had, it manages to harmonize all right. its material needs, right. its social needs. Uh, is that an anomaly? Is it something? So cities go through cycles. And there are times in history you know, they, where there's this great enthusiasm and incredible vision and they work, and they all over time fall apart. Every one of them has collapsed. And um, actually probably the longest continuous operating city in the world was Baghdad, and I hate to say it, but we're the ones who helped collapse uh, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. But um, well, Let's come back to that, because yeah, I fine. would love to ask whether you think Baghdad could be, in fact, resuscitated. Yes, let, let, the answer let, is yes. Okay, good. Keep going. Well, so okay. another uh, mm -hmm. example in the book is, should we move our mics up? Because I keep hearing yeah, feedback. Yeah. Way to help it. They'll move the mic Are they too low or too high? Yeah, I think they're too low. Too I, low. They need to be closer up. Okay. okay. We'll try that. Yeah. Good. Okay. So um, another example in the book is Medellin, which is the capital of Colombia. And in yeah. 1990, Medellin was, was ranked the most dangerous city in the world. It was run by drug gangs. It right. was... Uh, I. Presume that none of any, nobody in this room would be likely to go there. Um, in 2013, it was ranked the most sustainable city in the world, and is now an incredible model of what some of the great cities are. So how did the, that's 23 uh, years? Medellin, capital of and Colombia. That's, that's in 23 years. In 23 years. Yeah. So yeah. that happened between vision and a lot of innovation. I, we can go through all the things they did, but the point is that um, they literally took a mountain path which is where they used to hang the bodies and call the path of death and turned it into the path of life. And it's now surrounded by community gardens and a beautiful restored forest. And so it takes vision and leadership and, and coherence. If everybody's all on the same page and working together in the same direction, extraordinary things can happen in cities. And when they're in different directions, when there's actually a great degree of um, social disharmony and income inequality, cities collapse. Yes, and certainly that, that, that's true of Baghdad at right. the moment. Um, would you say it's true of American cities? So another example in the book, okay. I do a lot of city pair examples, uh, is um, the difference between Detroit and Louisville. So in 1970, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that there had to be integration in schools, and the schools, the, the, the cities that were most segregated had judges who enforced school segregation. In Detroit, so the same thing happened to Detroit and Louisville at the same time. In Detroit, um, uh, there, the people violently opposed this, this integration. The John Birch Society actually burnt buses, and um, the judge who uh, had to make this decision, was so harassed that three years later he died of a heart attack. Uh, there was enormous white flight to the suburbs to get out of the integration. In 1980, Detroit was 80% white and 20% black, and today it is 4% white and the rest is all minority. So, uh, and the city fell apart. The city is about 60% of its original population and was in bankruptcy and we saw all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. In Louisville, a southern city, the people said, that's the court order. We've got to live up to it. I'm going to explain in a minute who those people were. 
And um, they solved the problem. They merged the city and county school system. This is about integration, actually. So all of a sudden, you couldn't move to the suburbs to get to a better school because it was all the same. When everybody's in it together, and that's an important theme of the book, that the only way we solve this is through a compassionate understanding we are all in it together. They all were in the same school district, so therefore, they, everybody had a vested interest to make sure that every school was equally as good. And once you did that, then you, then, and actually when they started making magnet schools, some of them are in the inner city schools, and now parents want to bus their kids to the best schools, so, and they want those neighborhoods to be better neighborhoods, so they're reinvesting in those neighborhoods. This integration of the city and county school district went so well that they ended up merging the city and county all together, the governments, and that all went so well. One of the things that they recognize a generation later is that the people they're educating are people who um, understand diversity, who understand collaboration, who understand complexity, and they have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country now because they've been able to market to other cities and to international companies. If you're gonna come to America, come to Louisville because we love foreigners. We, we under, you're not a foreigner with us, you're one of us. That happened because there were two amazing leaders in Louisville. There was the Bingham family who controlled the, the newspaper. The newspaper. And they were extraordinary, very enlightened exactly. people in, on many, many levels. Right? And right. there was the Brown family that controlled Brown Foreman that was the largest uh, industry, the liquor industry there. Mm -hmm. And those two families as leaders said, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it for all of us. So it takes that kind, with that kind of leadership, cities can you, transform. You make a similar analogy, as I recall, between Atlanta and Birmingham, right? Yes. Yes. So, uh, this is another really interesting one. So in 1956, this little startup airline that had been basically making most of its money by flying mail around, it was called Delta, had a vision that they were going to grow by becoming a regional hub. And a, a hub spoke system tied onto the Atlanta airport, into an airport, and then they wanted to connect it to Mexico because they could claim to be international, and they wanted to connect to Chicago because that was the big city. And they went to Birmingham, and they went to Atlanta, and they said, uh, who will support us? Who will build a new airport and help us become this amazing hub? And Birmingham said no, and they said, we don't want those foreigners coming up from Mexico, and we don't want those... Let, them, let alone coming from New York. Yeah, and we don't want those union guys coming down from Chicago. Right. And Atlanta said, wow, we could be an international city, and we could be connected to the big markets of Chicago. Fantastic. Birmingham was so against it, they actually increased the local aviation fuel tax, just to make sure that nobody wanted to fly there. Okay, now we look at what happened today. So today, Atlanta is like six times bigger than Birmingham. Its median income is literally twice as high as, as Birmingham's. And obviously, the, what happened is that culture, then when the civil rights issues happened, Birmingham turned inward, expressed its innate racism. And when all the riots were happening in Birmingham, they went to the mayor of, um, of uh, Atlanta, and they asked him, so, what's going on? You know, what do you think? And I forgot the exact phrase, but he said something like, we're too busy the, to we're hate. We're too busy. It became yeah. actually a Chamber of Commerce yeah. slogan, yeah. the city too busy to hate. Right. Yes. Right, right. So uh, the attitude and culture of a city, and it's... Um, 
willingness, its propensity to integrate its diversity uh, has a huge uh, outcome in, into its prosperity. This has uh, no small resonance in the current election campaign, it would seem to me, actually, these, these issues. Um, we have yet to go beyond coherence of your five right. points. So let, let's, uh, Philip, did you want to add something? Yeah. One of the interesting things is that you came up with nine C's. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, uh, such a complicated subject, and what uh, Jonathan has done is has invented a way of talking about it that you can actually remember. Would you go through the nine C's, because it's really quite interesting. I'm not sure I'm going to remember all the nine C's. <laughs> I can remember the five well, we, we, I can remember the, the five things. I can remember the five so, things. Okay. But so here, here's the point. I'll go through this very quickly. Um, so how did cities emerge? Why do cities exist? I mean, people were tribal, and they were you know, living out in the savanna, and we were hunting as tribes and stuff like that. We didn't even have huts. And so where did this whole thing of cities come from? How did it emerge? And there is no actually coherent theory that I've read about it. And so I created one. And there are nine steps of, uh, that I observed that one had to go through, that civilization, that human culture had to go through step by step to get to cities. Um, but I want to describe uh, the beginning, the very beginning. So the oldest known structure, I mean, people probably lived in mud huts mm. and twigs mm -hmm. and stuff that have um, you know, rotted over time. But the oldest known structure was about 12,000 years ago, and it was in Turkey, in southern Turkey, and it's at a place called something like, uh, I can't pronounce it perfectly, but Tepe Gobekli. And it's this astounding temple complex. It's like a Stonehenge on steroids, enormous rocks. How, they, how these people move them is, we still have not been able to figure out. And an um, incredible sculpture that they carved out of these enormous rocks and amazing ceremonies that they think took place there, et cetera. That was it. There were no huts. There was nothing else except this amazing place. By the way, the reason that place existed is because the people who lived there said that that was the birthplace of agriculture, and that is where the grains that fueled civilization came from. And when you, today, when you do uh, DNA research and you take the original grains, the barley and emmer and all those things that fueled civilization, and you feed, you go to the back and geologically, they all came from 20 miles from that spot. They pretty much got it right. Okay, so what we found is an ancient, I'm not going to take through all the nine seas, but, but as, you, as these settlements, which were always spiritual in nature originally, begin to then add commerce, people settle down, they want to be near their great spiritual leader, and they, then all of a sudden as they differentiate, they start trading. There's no reason to trade if everyone is the same thing. We trade when there's difference. They build networks, and these networks start getting connected. And as they connect, they get more complex. These are some of the Cs. And as they get complex, they start getting more concentrated. So they start building diversity. Density. And as you get complexity and, and density and um, concentration together, uh, along with culture that is evolving, and then they start developing language to manage the complexity, so they need control systems or governance systems. And it, all those merged level after level after level, along with it, the physical manifestation of that emergence of culture happens, and you end up with cities. The cities always were organized around a temple, and for thousands of years, for, particularly in China, but they physically tried to be a map of the universe, which was what Bach was trying to do with his music. So that's really, so the analogy, in your view, really is a physical, it's has, a, is a physical one as much as a sort of conceptual 
one. I wouldn't say as much as I would say at every level. It's at physical, level. Okay. it's conceptual, it's spiritual, it's, it's act compositional. It's a mall. Uh, mm -hmm. By the way, uh, I don't know, you didn't mention this, but, but we might have talked about it before. If you visit indigenous people in different parts of the world, right. uh, we have what we call mystery plays here in, in Europe. Those things are still going on in places that, uh, that haven't have anything to do with European or American culture. Uh, and I was uh, present in one of those in, in a, a, a kind of a, a part of Mexico that people don't usually get to go to. And I w watched an all-night ceremony, and I was watching this, and I said, oh, this is how opera began. <laughs> and that, in fact, there was a theory among uh, in, in music that, that that things began in the churches, and then they, be, they right. became plays, and then they went out of the churches, and they became, eventually, uh, by the time of Haydn, uh, they dared to do things almost commercially, but it took a while, it took a long while before that happened. But, so, at the very beginning, these, uh, these, uh, these communities, and, uh, and, and, and it's still going, it's actually still going on right now, that uh, the, the, the uh, the religious spirit of the place is embodied in these stories, mm -hmm. and there, and there, and the people get, and those those plays can go on for the whole night. Right. There's almost an irony to that, given how little we associate the city with religion in contemporary culture. I think. Right. I mean, there's, and, there's. And I actually. Right. I am going to jump to the end. So the end, okay. the last C, we can do the ones in the middle too, we should. Okay. But the last C is compassion. And in fact, religion has always been the carrier of the message of compassion. It's not always been the carrier of the practice of compassion. Right. But it has, but innate in spirituality is the, uh, the understanding that we were all one, that we're all interconnected, which we now know is the scientific principle of actually ecology and physics is tremendously how interdependence weaves through everything. And, we, and if we can infuse compassion into that interdependence, that is how we really get healthy cities. And um, the earliest cities were founded on a sense of both harmony with nature and justice. And my sense is we can't recall that in a 3,000-year-old way. We can't even call it in an indigenous people way. We need to find a language and a methodology of recalling that in, in the spirit of our own times. I found it particularly important for this moment, uh, Jonathan, because I think there, there's so much discussion today, particularly among urbanologists, about, and, uh, about technology making the city obsolete. Um, because we don't, you know, what, one, step you, one step of history that you, you uh, jumped over is the, the role of the city as the sort of marketplace right. and trading post and so right. forth, which was critical to its growth. But we know we don't need in quite the same way because you know you, you, you can buy and sell online. You don't need the stock exchange in the way you did. You don't need a lot of things the way you did. You don't need it as a manufacturing center in quite the way you did. And yet it is clearly, given how important cities are right now and how how wrong the doomsayers in the 80s and 90s no. were. Uh, we want it because it's essential to our culture in a, in a key way, even if it's not 
quite as essential to the workings of the economy as it once was. So, right? well, actually, I, I disagree with that. Okay, good. Okay, so, good. number well, one, tell me, tell me why I'm wrong. Right. Well, okay. we, it's, part, it's totally part of culture. But actually, you know, 80% of America's economy flows through cities. Actually, 60% of the world's economy flows through cities that are on rivers or that are on um, seaports. Uh, people, uh, cities are cauldrons of opportunity. And um, uh, there are many amazing things that happen to people's lives when they move to cities. Uh, women's education goes up. Their health actually goes up. There are many, uh, but uh, there are many reasons why. The world is rapidly urbanizing, by the right. way. And by the end of the 21st century, it's projected that uh, over 80% of the world's people will live in cities. They are economic engines. And, and actually, what's happening is that all this high technology enables us, but who wants to sit alone on the top, mountaintop and be totally connected? It's boring. Right. And people right. want to be in the thriving heart, the right. commerce. They want to be in the pulse of people. And um, they actually want to get out of their car. They want to be in walkable places. They want to be um, in diverse places. And so that's one of the reasons why oh, yeah. cities no, are actually coming. We don't disagree coming. at all exactly. about that, of course. So, right. so but anyway, so, but yeah. here's the point. The technology is an amazing tool for cities. It's not the purpose of cities. It's not the outcome of cities. But um, there's a way to use technology to actually further integrate the cities and allow cities to be much more dynamic in their management and to be much more effective. And we're seeing that happen at this point, right? We are seeing yeah. that happen. So, and actually, one of the great leaders of that was Mayor Bloomberg. Um, so another interesting story in the book. So Bloomberg said, it's all, you'll see, the theme of integration, integration runs throughout the book. So Bloomberg said, to be able uh, to manage the city, I need a common database. It turns out there are 11 different ways, so think of them almost like the different musical keys, that um, buildings were addressed in New York City. So they had a postal address, which is the one we're probably familiar with. They had a, a fire pull station address. They had a police uh, address. They had a tax address, which is a block and lot number. They had a building department address, a building lot number, all these different address, 11 and 11 is a water meter address. So he said, he, there's a person in the administration set out to solve a very simple problem. When people illegally overcrowd, lots of immigrants living in a basement or something, there's a much, much higher risk of death and uh, from fires and from you know bad incidents. And you could identify that by simply looking at what's the certificate of an occupancy of a building say. And for example, how much water gallons per person, because we know how many gallons per person is typically used in the city are being used. And it was like 10 times as many gallons per people. You know there's 10 times as many people there. But the water meter address and the certificate of occupancy and the physical address didn't align. So they, he worked out a system to put them all together and all of a sudden unleashed, just like temperament in music, going across the keys, unleashed this incredible ability all of a sudden to do data analysis and solve real problems in cities. And so there's an amazing role. That's just the very beginning. You can take that now to very advanced levels. There's an amazing role for technology and data. We're only beginning to understand how to use it. Well, I think of the city in some ways as, as being kind of a series of hyperlinks in real space. Right. Because yes. it's all about connections, right? It's, it's yes. all about, it's a machine for facilitating connection. Right. And, and, and so in that sense, uh, it's altogether appropriate that, that technology and the city go together. I also find it very interesting that for all we talk about Silicon Valley, um, mm. you know, there are more Google employees in Manhattan than anywhere other than their headquarters <laughs> in Mountain View, California. And 
uh, there is more technology right. going on here than anywhere other than Silicon right. Valley. And it continues to flourish as a, as a center. This, this place that, that, in the view of some, was entirely out of date and a leftover relic of the industrial age has turned out to be entirely adaptable to the age of technology, right? right? So actually, uh, one of the amazing things about Phil's book um, is you describe what the city was like in the 1960s and 70s when <laughs> artists were moving into the industrial areas because industrial, we're in this great transition where industri industry right. disappeared. And in fact, it was those artists who were creating a whole new way of thinking that, that gave birth to the seeds of creativity that arose out of dead industry that is the reason why the city is so attractive to Google today. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. Right. But um, you know, in the book, mm -hmm. you talk about a lot of uh, aspects of culture uh, as a kind of a prism that, that it's, it, the, the prism splits it up and then you can describe it. And oddly enough, for a person who is so sensitive to the culture of painting, of literature, of music, as you are, there's very little of that in the book. Well, that, well, <laughs> it's, that's the book for somebody else to write. Well, can't write everything. That may, could be another book, but... but uh, uh, you can only fit so much into 441 <laughs> pages, no, I, I what, think. That's, that's, that's what the, the publisher says. But, you know, <laughs> Um, We've all been down that road. Well, that, right, right. Actually, that reminds me of another question, which it's true you don't really deal with, but I think yeah. we should talk about, which is the difference between the city as a place for the creation of culture and the city as a place for the consumption of culture. I think we tend sometimes to lump those two things together as if they were the same. And a lot of people mm. fear that today even amid the prosperity in which we live, the resurgence of New York that we all know about and, and, and that you've talked about and, and helped explain, that in fact, it is harder to create culture today than it once was. I mean, could, could Phil have had his career exactly as it was if he were starting out well, now and were 25 or 30 years old? It was certainly easier because I, I could, uh, I could work three days a week and have plenty of money. Right. My rent was $30 a month. That's I mean, kind of what I'm getting at, I, I yes. Could yes. Go to the, I could go yes. to the automat and have lunch for 75 cents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's I'm, kind I'm, of I'm, where I'm, I was going with that point. Yeah, yes. but, uh, but mm. in fact, uh, the interesting thing, the dynamic of uh, our culture as it, as it interfaces with society and politics uh, is, uh, it's quite a different thing. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we, we all are bemoaning the, the denigration of our, of our political process and our social right. processes. And, and I remember very clearly in the 60s, the same thing was going on. We had, we had uh, McCarthy, we had the, the witch hunts, and we had all that uh, stuff going uh, no, on. No, no, I think it was very different. No, wait a second. We were on the side of denigrating the political process. No, yeah, but the point, <laughs> the, the point was, was that the, 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 the left, there was a tremendous... Right. Uh, creative impulse mm -hmm. was going on. True. That, True. That's what gave us uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg and uh, yeah. Jackson Polk, all kinds of people. Yes. The same thing is happening right now. Okay. There's a, uh, a tremendous revival uh, of uh, independent and creative thinking among people under 30. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who are embracing not 
uh, art as a career where they would make money and, and get maybe get a medal from the, the government. They do it uh, in, in, a, in, in the kind of idealistic way that I remember very clearly when people came to New York in the 60s. No one ever expected to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and that was something that was never going to happen, and for many people it didn't happen. But for the, for, for the some artists it did. But the point is, is that at the moment now, uh, this is a whole other topic. It, yeah, I don't want to get off, so, this, off well, the subject. Just while we're on the subject, just very briefly, are we allowed to say who's going to get a medal from the government? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is your this is your night. Okay. Dear. So. Um, so there, there is something, though, that occurred with that affordability that, I, that is also really important to me. And I actually believe it is part of our moral and political responsibility to do what I call equalizing the landscape of opportunity. America is a land of opportunity more than any other nation. That is our mission. Remember, I keep saying we need to have a vision and a purpose, and I believe that that is one of our highest purposes. And we know with the inequality we're experiencing today and the difficulty uh, so, um, that our landscape of opportunity is not equal. So I just want to go through some of the elements. Right, it begins right. with what you're talking about, which is affordability. You cannot, um, I have a friend who says it's very hard for children to learn when they're uh, living under a bridge. Uh, affordable housing is a critical element of artists being able to thrive and survive, of all elements of society being able to thrive. And when cities do not have it, uh, they have great difficulties. Are you talking about education? So then that's where I was going next, is you need an extraordinary education system. Uh, in Finland, the education system, I can't remember if I said this already. Not tonight. Not tonight. No. I've been doing a lot of talks. So in yeah. Finland, the, um, every school is equally as good. Finland has the best education outcome in the world, and it doesn't matter whether you live in the richest neighborhood, the poorest neighborhood, the most Finnish neighborhood, or the most Ingerman neighborhood, every school is equally as good. You need amazing healthcare systems, you need mass transit and multiple transit choices, you need parks and open space, you need incredible arts and culture, again available from great schools and education for kids to all the way to you know this really superb pinnacle of what arts and culture can be. We need centers of spirituality, we need access to healthy food, and we know you need to weave all those together. There's a lot of data that shows with those you get opportunity. And the more pieces of that are missing, you don't get opportunity. There's something that you're not mentioning, <clears throat> which is that the, the most creative people are pushing against something. Yeah. And you haven't mentioned that. Well, I am trying to create a world that's so perfect there's nothing to no, push nobody against. Has to, nobody has to push against anything <laughs> I mean, anymore. No more string quartets, no more paintings, no uh, more But you see, perfection will never be reached. Perfection always needs pushers. You think of it as no, like, but I think the point yeah. though is that complacency does yeah. not yield uh, a great exactly. a great culture or a great society, right? right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so think yeah. of it as like a sculpture that is always being carved, that is never finished, and the and the rock itself is always evolving because every nothing is static. The world is always evolving. So you're very right. That's actually an amazing observation. That complacent that complacency doesn't work. And that you need people right. who are always pushing that's, against what is. That's 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 what brings out the creative right. spirit. Yeah. That's an anti-C complacency, actually. Uh, we have time for a couple of questions before our adjournment, and we'd like to bring you into the discussion a little bit. So, yes, sir. So, you're talking about how the integration and the, the level playing field, for example, with affordable housing, is so important, and yet we're 
of seeing a, it, it feels like New York is becoming less affordable and it's becoming more separated, more gentrification, and direction moving away from it. So do you have a, a pessimistic or optimistic view about New York now since it's moving away from your vision? Can I repeat the question in case anyone didn't hear it? Okay, about affordability and the fear that uh, despite our belief in it as a concept, New York is in fact moving, and despite the things Jonathan's company has actually done some extraordinary projects, but nevertheless it is sort of pushing back against for larger forces pushing us in the other direction toward uh, less, income less income equality and less affordability. Comment? So um, uh, the first thing is I'm very pleased that Mayor de Blasio made is one of the cornerstones of what he's trying to achieve is to uh, build and preserve 200,000 units of affordable housing. It's not enough, but it's an enormous goal and it's a, it's a very important goal. And cities all across America, I just came from Denver where city council is literally at this moment debating whether or not to uh, create, spend more money on affordable housing. It, affordable housing must be subsidized and therefore it takes public policy and I agree that cities without a, affordable housing. And affordable housing is for many sectors. It is for low-income seniors living off of Social Security. It's for young people getting out of school with their first job. It's for homeless families. It's for uh, single working mothers. It's for a very wide, wide range of needs. And we therefore, we need a very wide range of solutions. And it is also one of those things that we will never perfectly achieve. Uh, but we need the cities that are the most affordable are the ones that have lousy economies. So it's one that um, will be a long, hard work we need to continue to do. Right, right. Uh, yes, then you and then, then you, sir. Yes. So in my first life, I went to a graduate school of social work. And one of the best books was Temperament and Behavioral Disorders in Children. It was written by White Casey. And um, so we knew both temperament. And one of the tenets of that book is that I would thoroughly research on mother and children. And it would identify the temperament, the innate ability, you know, the innate So there are the questions about leadership and about psycholo psychological temperament. And there's a whole section in the book actually about psychological temperament. And I actually create a phrase called the cognitive ecology, which is functions, I think, just like the natural ecology, having a collective system of how all our minds work together. And there are some very dysfunctional cognitive elements of the cognitive ecology functioning right now, particularly in mother-child relations others, which I, I get into in the book. So, but um, we need 
healthy, healthy mental systems and those need to be pervasive and that's not so much an issue of leadership as it's actually an issue of family dynamics and a bunch of other things I'd write about. We need to create the conditions upon which great leadership will arise. Um, I heard Jeb Bush give a very early speech in his campaign in which he said, don't complain about all the dysfunction in Washington. The dysfunction in Washington is a, is a reflection of us. And it is our collective responsibility that creates the kind of leadership that we get. And I, I believe that. Um, we need to create an environment in which great leaders are, are more likely to be uh, fed and rise out of, though. Yes. Sir. Jonathan, do you want to start on that? Yeah, it's a long and complicated question about gentrification and its effect and impact. Uh, but but I think I think it also uh, conflated uh, gentrification in terms of n neighborhoods evolving and people with money coming in and immigration and the evolution of workforces and the decline of manufacturing and all, all of those things were kind of pulled together into a very complicated question. Um, that uh, I'm not sure how we can answer without I'm, spending the next hour, but if you want to... I don't, it's, it is an amazing, right, right. it's a really fascinating and amazing question for which there is no perfect answer. Um, the best answer I can give is that um, there's enormous steps of balance that need to be created in any city and, um, and to create healthy cities. And you've pointed out several elements that are out of balance now that we need to work to rebalance. Hyper, hyper gentrification, I think, I've increasingly come to think is a very destructive no. force. Yeah. I mean, the, the, and by hyper gentrification, I mean those, you know, trillion dollar condos that are bought solely as investment and never occupied 
and or barely ever occupied and are really really tell us much more about the flow of global capital around the world than they do about cities and neighborhoods and so forth but in the process they do they they hold the potential of of damaging and corrupting neighborhoods by making them so gentrified as to no longer function as neighborhoods anymore. Right. I mean, there's a fascinating thing I just read today about a, uh, a study just done in London, in Hampstead, in London, where um, shops and local businesses are getting into trouble, not just because they're being priced out by expensive landlords, but because they have no customers, because <laughs> all the houses are being bought by wow. people from around the world, largely as investment, only occupied a handful of weeks a year, and you have this exquisite neighborhood where everything's worth, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds, and nobody's shopping in the stores. And there's no crime. And there's no crime, no people, no, right, no, right, no, right. No, but I mean, you don't, you no longer have a viable urban neighborhood. So it's a, it's a case of, of so much prosperity that in fact you've destroyed the very thing you thought you were saving and helping. And, and, and I think we, I worry about that in certain parts of New York, certainly 57th Street, but, you know, anyway. Uh, I have one more, time for one more, I think. Uh, oh, we have two, well, if, if, you, if you're quick, too. Yes, sir. So, maybe it seems obvious, but I'm just curious how you arrived at the conclusion that um, the decline in New York City of much greater inequality would gain this level of inequality. You know, I ask just because I think, you know, in my memory of New York, it's always been So I actually didn't make that conclusion in the book. And uh, there's a whole section of the book about income inequality. It actually looks at the relationship between prosperity, growth, prosperity, growth, inequality, and well-being. And um, I don't remember any data for New York. It actually talks about other cities in that section. So the question was, is New York, New York has, uh, is it more in, unequal or less unequal in the past? And we know in the times of Jacob Rees, it was incredibly it was so unequal. So it's yeah. gone yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly a history it's of great through, inequality. It's gone here. through yes, cycles. Yes. So actually, what the book says, what I, I did, did a whole interesting data run that compared um, the Gini index, which is a way to measure inequality, uh, well-being indexes, and um, uh, economic prosperity indexes, and looked at what cities had the performed the highest on all three. And interestingly, they are mostly mid-sized cities in America, you know, so places like Provo and Utah right, and outside right. of Salt Lake City. Right, so right, those right. turn out to be the places that have the most balance between equality, mm -hmm. well-being, and, and mm -hmm. prosperity. Okay, but Real quick, yes. No. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, a concise question and a concise answer. Thank you. Okay. Uh, please join me in thanking Philip Glass and Jonathan Rose, our author. Thank you. Thanks for all of you. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 2016 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.